Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick, and we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it seems like we've been covering the same nations for a long time. That's certainly true. For the last 21 years, we have closely examined these countries that we know are going to be involved in the end times by looking at Scripture. As a matter of fact, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, for a long time, 21 years, over a 1,000 programs in those 21 years, based out of the Middle East and then here in the United States, we have been covering these nations, the very nations that are listed in Bible prophecy. Rick, we've got a lot to cover today, don't we? We sure do, starting with Ken Timmerman. We're going to go right to Ken Timmerman now, our first broadcast partner. Ken joins us today from Florida. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. First story that I would like to get to, Ken, and it seems like it's straight out of the Cold War, is a story uh, from the Israel National News. It's in the Pentagon. says that China is to have 1,000 nukes by 2030. Can you comment on that story? Well, you know, uh, interestingly, this is something that we have been talking about for quite some time. Uh, there have long been unconfirmed reports that China was building underground launch sites for over a decade and possibly had stockpiled as many as 3,000 nuclear warheads in underground tunnels. That has not been confirmed yet, but now what we are seeing is that the Pentagon has finally come around and recognized what China is doing more publicly, uh, and that is in particular to they have been building 300 uh, silos for uh, nuclear missiles, for ICBMs capable of reaching the United States in that western uh, Turkestan province known as Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs live, by the way, the Uyghurs who are being persecuted by the Chinese. It's a vast, mostly desert wasteland area of western China, but that's where they put their nuclear missile silos. They're building 300 more, and now we have the Pentagon saying openly in a public report that they will have most likely 1,000 warheads by 2030. This is five times the number that they have acknowledged to have up until now. So this is a very significant development. This is the first time it has been publicly acknowledged by the Pentagon and that they've actually put a number on China's massive, massive nuclear expansion. What could be, for I guess a two-part question here, what could be the cause for this buildup? And secondly, uh, the United States and its current administration, um, the Biden administration, uh, are they up to the challenge in, in, in responding to this threat? So I'm, I'm really not sure that Biden is up to the challenge, uh, but this is a, it is a serious challenge, and the Chinese are expanding the nuclear weapons capabilities, I believe, to buttress their claims to become the world's hegemon by the year 2049, because that is their ultimate goal. They say this publicly. They intend to be the premier world power by 2049, and that means leaving us in their rearview mirror. We have gone from an era of American dominance, and, and although not perfect, has basically been a benevolent superpower. And now we're looking to maybe more of a kind of a tripolar United States, Russia, and China a trio of superpowers in the world with America losing its influence. Well, you're, you're correct. And I think anybody who looks at the world today can see that. Uh, possibly not so much the Russia side of it, because uh, we are not getting uh, very good news about Russia 
in the national media, the corporate media. Uh, it's all screaming about Russian disinformation and Russian cyber hacking and Russian interference in our elections while neglecting to report on the very important things that Russia is doing, such as modernizing its strategic nuclear weapons capabilities. They now have 85% of uh, new generation nuclear weapons. Our uh, last uh, nuclear warhead was designed in, I think, something like 1986 or 1987. Uh, The Russians have new weapons. They're testing hypersonic weapons. Uh, They are also leaving us behind. So uh, it is important to recognize that we now have two strategic competitors out there. And by the way, this is a statement by Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was at the Aspen Security Forum just this past week. And uh, by the way, I don't think Milley is a very uh, deep thinker. He was just recognizing the obvious, that we are now living in a tripartite, bipolar world with China and Russia virtually on equal military with us. My next question, Ken, and I'd like to take a look at it, and uh, we're going to move to the Middle East a little bit, and I'd like to get your comment on this. There's a, the military coup in Sudan, and it, the the kind of popular Arab uprising that began in the uh, the, the Arab Spring in 2011, uh, this is another blow the military has taken over. Can you explain the situation to us and what it means for uh, democracy and for stability in this region? Well, democracy and stability are two words that I would not use uh, in the <laughs> Middle East except to characterize yeah. Israel. Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. no countries in the Middle East, uh, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, where you have democracy and stability. You have countries that are stable, but they are not democratic. And you have countries that uh, aspire to democracy, but they are not stable. Uh, Iraq is in that latter category. They aspire to a democratic form of government, but they are certainly not stable because their neighbors interfere, like the Iranians, and their own people do not believe uh, that the government can stop them from making mischief, uh, forming militias, uh, blowing things up, uh, and essentially trying to destabilize the government. In Sudan, the military uh, took over a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this last week, and uh, basically they kicked out the civilian half of this uh, partnership that had been ruling Sudan since 2019, uh, succeeded in rehabilitating Sudan on the world stage and getting U.S. sanctions lifted and resolving uh, issues, for example, relating to the former government's involvement in terrorist attacks that killed the lives of Americans. Uh, they resolved those issues. And now the military said, okay, that's all, that's all right. We're going to kick the civilians out and take over completely. Uh, in recent weeks, you have also seen a movement uh, of Sudanese influence over South Sudan. This is the Christian area, the new country that was formed in 2011. And they also are undergoing tremendous turmoil. And the current president of South Sudan recently has hired three top advisors who are essentially Muslim extremists, Muslim brothers, and he is now talking about reuniting the country with Sudan. This would be a disaster for the Christian minority. Uh, so Sudan is, is going downhill very quickly. As for the Arab Spring more generally, uh, really, it was motivated by two forces, uh, a, an authentic uh, desire among young men in particular, young men and women 
where they were allowed to express themselves, to have greater freedoms. But at the same time, it was also motivated by the Muslim Brotherhood. And because the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is a supremacist organization, was more powerful and especially better organized than the pro-democracy movement, what you had was uh, essentially a Muslim Brotherhood takeover in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, and an attempt to take over in Syria. So the Arab Spring cannot be seen really as just a pro-democratic movement. It has to also be understood as a pro-Muslim Brotherhood reality. Uh, and that is where we are today, is that you have countries like, like Libya in particular, uh, where the Muslim Brotherhood rules. Uh, you have countries like Egypt where they did rule, were thrown out, but are still a power. You have countries like Syria where they are still trying to overthrow the government uh, and they are receiving support from Turkey, their neighbor to the north, who, by the way, uh, the latest on that, and we talked about this last week, but there has been an update there, the Turks are massing more weapons just across the Syrian border, and they are working with the free Syrian army, this force of jihadis that the United States government under Obama uh, spawned. And they are going to go into Syria in the next week, probably, to crush the Kurds. One final question, but I kind of would like your quick take on what could potentially be the Virginia governor election, the New Jersey governor election. Those were some kind of maybe rightward shifts and maybe some, uh, not maybe not a direct threat, but maybe just a, a, an implication that maybe President Biden's administration is not working exactly like it intended or like America wants. What can you say about what maybe this means as a shift in American politics? Well, I think it's an earthquake, Rick. It is an earthquake, a political earthquake. Uh, Virginia, which had been won 10 points uh, by uh, Joe Biden, uh, at least that was the official result that we were giving. Given now you have a Republican winning by three points. Uh, and in New Jersey, uh, which has been solid blue for a very long time, that race is still undecided. So we'll, we'll have to see. This is an earthquake. It's a, it's a political earthquake. And what happened, I think, is that the Democrats went too far left, and especially they challenged uh, the parents of this country. And, you know, my friend Dan Magina was talking about this the other night. He said, don't get Mama Bear and Papa Bear enraged uh, nope. because they will never give up. And that's what the Democrats have done. They have really threatened our children, uh, the children in schools, what they're going to be taught, whether they're going to get jabbed with some unknown uh, substance uh, that they may or may not need, that may or may not be able to help them, or that may or may not do them actual harm. We don't know uh, enough about that yet. And, and I think the, the Democrats have really pushed this too far. People have risen up, uh, and I believe this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in 2022. Um, the best commentary I've heard so far on the election results was from James Carville. Remember the Democrat who helped orchestrate the election of Bill Clinton? He said, that, he said the Democrat left has got to go to a woke rehab center because wokeness has begun to outrage the American people. And he's right about that. Well, I appreciate your insights on that as well. And I tend to agree with you. Thank you so much, Ken, for the work that you do to keep our listeners informed. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, we're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East news update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. This Sunday marks the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says persecuted believers always ask for prayer. You can get involved, especially through your local church. VOM has created resources to help, including a short video that puts a face to the idea of persecuted Christians. Plus, VOM gives churches specific things to pray for on Sunday. In other news, first-century Christians speak to us today through the work of international media ministries. President Denise Godwin says the latest IMM docudrama about Cyprian carries a timely message for today's viewers. The quality of this production earns merit. Cyprian took first place in the Strength of Faith category at this year's Hollywood Divine International Film Festival. You can find it on Amazon or Redeem TV. Just look for this series, Lost Legacy Reclaimed. We'll connect you online at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with my brother Rick. You know, Rick, so many times people ask us, why do we focus on the Jewish people so much on our programs? Well, if this is the first time you're listening to our program, you understand that God has a plan for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. That's why we focus on the Jewish people so much, and that's why we have our Middle East News Update. Rick, I know you're here with David Dolan. Let's, uh, let's find out the latest of what's happening in the Middle East. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Rick. Thank you. Good to talk to you. My first question, there's reports out because of the unrest in Lebanon and because some of the things that are taking place there, there are some certain reports out that Lebanon is Israel's greatest security threat. Is that true? Well, yes and no. As we've mentioned in the past, Lebanon backed by Iran is definitely the greatest threat. So the real threat still remains, the central threat remains Iran. But they have this uh, large uh, military force right on Israel's northern border that Iran sponsors, funded. I was in Lebanon when they set it up in 1982. And as we've discussed, it has tens of thousands, probably over 100,000 soldiers. They're getting weapons all the time from Iran. In fact, Israel bombed a convoy of weapons west of Damascus last weekend that was heading towards uh, Lebanon, so they're constantly supplying them with forces and things. And as a result, the Israelis have uh, begun another major exercise in the north, uh, Rick, this week. They began it uh, last Sunday in preparation for a possible Hezbollah attack on Israel. And this is, oh, maybe the 20th time they've done it, but they become increasingly large every time they hold one of these. And uh, we got some comments from Israeli leaders that they 
believe that a surprise attack could be launched by Hezbollah at virtually any time. Their aim would be to capture several Israeli cities and then at the same time divert Israel's attention by uh, massively bombing uh, maybe Tel Aviv, Haifa, other places with these new precision-guided rockets that, again, Iran has been a key in supplying to them. And the latest drill involves evacuating Israeli civilians from the northern border area. Uh, they tried to do that during the May War in the south along the Gaza Strip, but they found that the bus drivers, most of them, they knew this, but they're Arab Israelis, but they refused to do this. They refused to drive civilians out of the area. So uh, they're dealing with that issue and just expecting uh, some sort of crisis there. But again, it would be not just uh, Hezbollah. It would be Hamas in the south. And we have to point out that Hamas now has branches in Lebanon itself. There are several hundred thousand Palestinians uh, living in Lebanon, mostly in the south of the country, in the Sidon area. And from there, they fired some rockets into Israel during the May War. So uh, they have that to deal with. And, of course, Iraq's uh, brigades that are uh, being flown into Lebanon, we're told, are being brought into Lebanon, mostly by plane, to strengthen the forces there. So the signs that Hezbollah may be preparing a surprise attack at any time are growing, and uh, that has the Israelis obviously reacting to that possibility. Also, they tested the expectation that power would be knocked out uh, in the first stage of any war, that Hezbollah would direct its rockets at Israel's power stations and try to uh, plunge the whole country into the dark. So they're dealing with a lot of situations. There are potential situations. We've talked in the past about these Iranian proxies in Syria and Lebanon, and we've talked about how the fact that they don't necessarily want a hot war or a major offensive, but it's kind of like a constant irritant. Is this more of the same, or is this an escalation? Well, they continue to improve their capabilities. Uh, so in that sense, it's an escalation. Uh, five years ago, they might have tried to have destroyed all of Israel's power plants, but they probably couldn't have done it because their rockets were not that accurate. Iran's made sure over the past several years that they are accurate by sending these GPS devices to attach to existing rockets so that they can be guided by satellite to exact targets. So that's an upgrade. And, of course, the Israelis are preparing for this. They do have support, Rick. Uh, there's a major exercise going on uh, in the south of Israel right now uh, involving U.S. Marines. Uh, around 500 Marines are on the ground. They're practicing the possible takeover by Iranian forces of an embassy or a consulate or a, a couple ships. And uh, these are joint exercises, so that shows continuing American military support. A B-1 bomber was sent from South Dakota over the weekend, last weekend, and it flew over several important sites, the Strait of Hormuz, the Suez Canal, and in each of the locations, Egyptian fighter jets accompanied them over the Suez, uh, Bahrainian jets accompanied them over the um, Persian Gulf, and Israeli jets accompanied them over the Red Sea. So once again, reminding Iran and its proxy forces that Israel isn't completely alone. But of course, the speculation continues in Israel. Will the Biden administration really support Israel militarily in any conflict 
Uh, we know the U.S. military is ready, but is the U.S. administration ready to possibly confront Iran full-on? So that's a question that remains very much in Israel's mind. And, Rick, on Thursday, after it was announced that the nuclear talks will resume the end of this month up in uh, Vienna, that involves six world powers, China, Russia, three European powers, and they want to revive this uh, nuclear accord. But uh, Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, spoke to a U.N. group, and he said that Israel will not tire. We will be relentless when we're talking about the very existence of the Jewish state. We will do what we need to do. So he said we would love to see a real accord. We don't expect that. Iran violated the last one, in fact, massively so, and they're openly saying that they're enriching uranium way beyond the limits that were agreed upon in that accord that President Trump pulled out of, and uh, that this is uh, what Bennett called, quote, a strategic threat to the world, but an existential threat to Israel. In other words, the very existence of Israel is on the line. So the situation is certainly very, very tense in the region, and we could have conflict at any time. Well, the situation with a nuclear power, Iran, is, like you said, an existential threat. But I thought it was very interesting what you just said, the fact that they are developing more capabilities through their proxies. And, you know, maybe they could not have done certain things, their powers have increased over the years. And so it becomes a point, many people say that Israel should just stand down because they have military superiority. But if you keep on doing that, the other side is going to, like you said, develop a threat that could really do serious damage. Well, and again, this is Iran saying openly, vocally, and they've been doing this since Ayatollah Khomeini took over Iran in 1979, so a long time now. And then the next uh, decade created Hezbollah in Lebanon and strengthened the militias in Iraq and uh, started sending weapons to the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, started to arm the Houthi rebels in Yemen, on and on. So they have surrounded Israel. They've declared war against Israel, and they've said the war will be a war of annihilation. So Israel has no choice if it wants to remain alive as a country. It has no choice but to confront this. And as I said last week, they've never fought a war with Iran before, not a full war. We've had this shadow war going on. But it was Iran that left its uh, tables uh, a thousand miles away and came over uh, encircled Israel with all these allied forces. So it's a terrible situation, dreadful, and uh, the Israelis are preparing for the possibility of a very, and I hate to say this, but a very destructive war that could lead to hundreds of thousands of casualties, the loss of their power stations, disruption of civilian life entirely. We haven't even talked about the sea, what's going on out there, or their drone force. I mentioned that last week. They can do a, a enormous damage upon Israel, and Israel just has to be ready for that as best they can. And hopefully the United States would indeed stand with them in such a conflict. Well, this situation is not new, but it is an ongoing and continuing situation. We talk about it weekly, but we need to keep an eye on it weekly. So I'm glad that we do that. Well, got about a minute left, and I wanted to ask you uh, another bit of news this week. Into this 
tough diplomatic situation steps the new ambassador to Israel, Thomas Nides. What can you tell us about him and what kind of task does he have before him? Well, he was first uh, introduced into the State Department by the previous Obama administration, and uh, he's Jewish. He's actually from Duluth, Minnesota. He's definitely strong uh, on Israel. He uh, told the Senate committee that approved his nomination that uh, America should resupply the Iron Dome system, uh, should continue to stand with Israel. But he's going to face this uh, issue of the potential opening of a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. We discussed that last week and before. That is something the Israelis do not want to see. It would be, in effect, the redivision of Jerusalem. So how he'll handle that one, uh, we'll see. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your weekly visit with us. And thank you for keeping our listeners educated. Thank you, Rick. God bless We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, and when we come back, Winky Madad. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio Network. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. We've got three great interviews coming up. Winky Madad, Dr. Don DeYoung, and R.C. Merle. And we get started with Winky Madad. Winky Madad is with us today. Winky is the former mayor of Shiloh and is our expert and man on the ground there in Israel. Winky, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and I hope everybody on your end is feeling well, too. Well, thank you so much. First issue I'd like to get to, uh, just as we here in the United States have recently had some political developments, it looks like there are some similar type of political uprisings in Israel. I saw thousands rally in Tel Aviv against the current Bennett Lapid government. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, of course, uh, the opposition here, the parliamentary opposition, the parties that were in power up until about four months ago, in our system, we try to gain enough votes in the Knesset to topple the government in between the elections. And uh, besides everything else, what really stirred the pot this past two weeks was an issue which really wasn't exactly clear. And the best that I can do is, here in Israel, parties do get sums of money to be distributed to NGOs or uh, civil society uh, groups that are reviewed by the government, but who are close to their political, educational, cultural, whatever you want to call it, uh, aims. So now we have an Arab party in the Knesset, and they wanted funds for their groups. Now, you really can't 
disagree with money for children or the homeless. And since they were claiming, and with a good deal of justification, I would admit, that the Arab population should need more attention, the sums of money uh, were uh, extraordinary. But then people began to look closely at the NGOs that were receiving them, and it turns out that at least one had its chairman or president of the board claiming he was giving money to Hamas educational, cultural institutions in Gaza. Well, as you can imagine, that, can I say, blew off the top of the teapot, and that really triggered a lot of responses besides uh, the consulate business uh, that brought out these people now at this moment in time. Well, and as we all know, the, the parliamentary system can create some kind of strange partners here. How is the Arab coalition working? Are they committed Israeli citizens? Oh, yes, they're full Israeli citizens. We have no problem with their standing, their commitment. Arabs here, as, as you quite well know, are relatively fully integrated into all levels of society, from the Supreme Court to the part, to MKs, uh, to judges, uh, in lower courts, industry, especially high-tech now in the, in the Galil. Uh, thousands of Arabs have gone into high-tech industry. But, of course you still have that national spark, can I call it? To remind our listeners, it exploded in May when alongside Israel fighting Hamas in the Gaza Strip, we had riots throughout Israel, especially in the mixed cities, as we call them, Lod, Ramla, Akko, the northern Negev, and a few other places, where I would say they were proving themselves a lot more disloyal than loyal, to what it means to be a citizen of the state of Israel. They were basically identifying with a, with a foreign terrorist group, and that has really been the background to these Arab parties and the criticism from the right wing of this government being in partnership with them. And is it true, are they often in the majority coalition? They rarely are. Up until uh, now... And we've had a few Arab members of Knesset in the 50s and 60s. I'm talking history, ancient history, many of the people living, uh, listening here on, on our conversation. Uh, but they were with parties that were affiliated with the, the former Labor Party, which was called Mapai at the time. I won't get into details. And there have been Druze members, including members of uh, the Likud Party. But to be in coalition, which means to be deputy ministers, head of committees in the Knesset, and part of the coalition agreements. This is the first time it's happened in this form. Winky, just on a related note, I read an article in the Jerusalem Post, and it looks like a majority of Israelis are at least somewhat positive of this new government um, and say that Israel has not lost its, and or has gained, actually, in their standing in the world. Is that the atmosphere that you see? No, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, uh, Shimon Peres once said, poles are to be treated like perfume. They smell nice, don't drink it. And so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit doubtful about the, the, that type of a, of a poll in terms of people feeling good. The other polls that I saw this week had the New Hope Party of Gidon Saar, a formerly couldn't have bolted and went over to this new coalition, not passing the threshold to 
to get into the next Knesset. And Bennett's body is like hovering just above the threshold. Now, the budget is being passed this week, successfully it seems, so I'm sure there'll be a little bit of an uptick. But at the present moment, the two main, how can I call it, right-of-center parties in the coalition seem to be losing quickly their voter base. Uh, a couple more items in the news. The last, uh, Before I ask you about the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, Winky, I wanted to ask you real quick, the, the neighborhood, uh, the Shikjarad neighborhood uh, that started much of the uprising, or, or according to the media, that started the uprising, the tenant um, eviction controversy, seems to be back in the news. Can you explain what's going on there? Well, very simply, the Supreme Court offered them a deal. They could stay in their property, their houses or their apartments, whatever they're in, if I'm not mistaken, for the next 15 years as protected tenants, but they have to recognize that they don't own the property. In other words, the Supreme Court agreed that it is Jewish property. However, because they've been living there for so long, it would be not proper. It wouldn't be... um, uh, human, uh, to throw them out in the street, even though, of course, this case has been going on for years, and they haven't been paid any rent, okay? <laughs> so we're trying to bend over backwards here. I think the Supreme Court got into a little bit of a difficulty trying to prevent riots instead of simply dealing out justice and, and the law. But that's just my side uh, comment. Well, but what is really the story is, is that the pressure from the Palestinian Authority... Mm-hmm is causing, if I'm not mistaken, if not all, almost all of the tenants to refuse the deal. In other words, the Palestinian Authority is playing politics on the back of these people, because if they do reject the compromise, they get thrown out. It does sound like they're being used as pawns. More than that, they're being used as uh, as a football to be kicked around and everybody's happy about who wins the game or who loses the game, but the poor football mm. at the end of the game probably has to be thrown away. Mm. Well, finally, and I know you have to go, Winky, so my last question, and I know we're coming up on the 104th birthday of the Balfour Declaration, and of course the Palestinian Authority is again confirming its most basic stance, which is basically that there is no peace until Israel is destroyed. So can you talk to us a little bit about the Balfour Declaration and how it's viewed by both Israelis and possibly how it's viewed by Arabs? Um, when World War I broke out, the Ottoman Empire joined Germany against what we know as the Allies, which then was Italy, actually Japan, if I'm not mistaken, but more importantly, England and France, and then America joined in in 1917. Zionists saw a opening here to get rid of 400 years of Ottoman Empire occupation, oppression, and suppression, and get the British to recognize the Jewish national right to live in its own homeland. And that's the short story. The British, I think also based on about 300 years of Christian what they called at the time, if I'm not mistaken, restoration, which meant that the Jews in some form would have to come back to the land of Israel as part of a Christian theological uh, outlook, 
and I won't get into that. I'm on the Jewish side of things. Balfour and uh, many other leading British Christian politicians stepped up to the plate. If we're using, if we in the football last time, now we're going back to baseball, huh. and and took a swing for the Jews. And it's been criticized by the Arab world unfairly because they forget that they also appealed to the British, and they got Lawrence of Arabia to help them get free from the Ottoman Empire, and after the war, they got Iraq and Jordan and Saudi Arabia free because of their commitments to the British. So I can't understand why they criticize us for doing exactly what they did in terms of geopolitics at the time of World War One. Well, I, did, I just read from the official Palestinian Authority daily paper, and they're saying that the world continues is enable of correcting their historical mistake by putting an end to the colonialist Zionist project. That basically sounds like uh, an end to the existence of the state of Israel. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, 110%. It also ignores the fact that the Arabs came out of Saudi Arabia, conquered and occupied what we know as the land of Israel or as Judea, and adopted the name Palestine only because the Romans and the Byzantines called it that. Not even an Arabic name. So it's, it's, it's the height of hypocrisy in terms of an ethical aspect of politics. And I don't see why, even if I'm not a Zionist, to think that the Arabs can say the entire Middle East should be theirs and the Jews cannot even have one small state and you and, and, and the family and all the people you brought on your tours over the years know Israel is not that big. Mm-hmm. And to begrudge us a little piece of land where we had our prophets, our priests, and our princes walk, talk, build, and create temples and culture and a language and a religion, I don't think that's not being not only fair but humane. Well, I would tend to agree with you, Winky. And again, I know your time is short, so thank you so much for your political perspective and today also for your historical perspective. Thank you very much again for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Winky Badad is always our uh, person that we talk to when we're uh, speaking about Israel, clarifying really the situation and what's going on, not only with the Palestinians, uh, the Balfour Declaration, uh, many things that are going on, even within the government in Israel as they're trying to pass their budget and uh, the uh, really, I guess, the government staying together for a little bit longer and why that is going on. Well, a longtime friend of our radio program, Dr. Don DeYoung. Dr. DeYoung is a physicist, professor emeritus at Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. His writing interests include clarifying technical topics, including the creationist worldview. Several of his books feature a Q&A format, uh, which is a really good way to learn, and with concise discussion of popular issues. Most of his books uh, are uh, available online. Um, Don also writes Science Object Lessons for Children, his website, discoveryofdesign2.com, discoveryofdesign2, 
That's his website. Don enjoys backpacking. And many times we've called him. He's just come out of the Grand Canyon or off of a trip on the Rio Grande River. Uh, I love his books, uh, Dinosaurs and Creation, Science in the Bible for Kids. My father's favorite, Astronomy and the Bible, Our Created Moon, Popular Science and Creation. These are a lot of the books that Don has written. You can go to Amazon.com. Just Google uh, or search on Amazon, Dr. Donald DeYoung, and uh, you'll be able to find these things. I think this is these are great resources to have in your library or for your children or for even for yourselves in your study. Um, Don, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to join you. So today we're talking a little bit about, and one of the reasons that I love to, to hear what you have to say, recently in the news, President Biden and world leaders were at the Conference of Parties, COP26, talking about climate change. And so we're just trying to figure out today, uh, first of all, did you watch that or were you, uh, I'm sure that you were aware that it was on, but uh, were you sitting on pins and needles watching what was going to come out of this conference? Well, no, no the quick answer would be no. <laughs> no, I'm certainly, you know, watching the, the summaries. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's world news when you get over 100 nations coming together. So it's kind of interesting to watch um, the controversy and watch the bottom line to see what what can be done. First of all, are we in a climate change or a global warming? And those two phrases, I guess, are used at different times. But which is it right now? Yeah, you know, the terms are pretty much interchangeable. And uh, uh, it does appear that uh, we are uh, undergoing some some climate change. It, it shows up uh, even in, in the weekly in the weekly weather. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is the climate of the world is always making adjustments. It's always changing. If you look at history, including uh, Bible history, there have been uh, cooler periods. There have been warmer periods. So this is not a one-time event. It's not, uh, you know, they tell some of our college students that this is the end of the world as mm -hmm. we know it. But uh, time moves on and adjustments are made. So, yes, the, temp the, the climate does uh, come and go. It always, it always has. You know, if you think back uh, uh, in Bible history, in uh, the pre-flood centuries from Adam to Noah, this world was, the whole world was warmer. We have uh, uh, fossil evidence that the whole place was tropical. Mm -hmm. After the after the global flood, there was a colder period when the Earth's climate was um, thrown out of equilibrium, and we really did have an ice age. Now, not a million years ago, but in Old Testament times, and then the Earth recovered from that. So again, uh, the temperature is always making adjustments and changes, and there are many variables. Certainly, uh, uh, people do not help it any with our large population of the world today, but there are many, many other factors. In fact, some of them much greater than anything that people can do. The oceans, the sun, lots of uh, variables. And that's why it's so hard to get a handle on, on climate change as the different variables kind of interplay against each other. Yes, sure. Do you think there is something... Um... And I know that this is a good thing. We're we're all in favor of being wise stewards of this earth that God has given to us. 
we do understand from what Scripture tells us, especially Bible prophecy, as we study Bible prophecy, understanding what's going to take place in the day of the Lord. And remember the phrase, in the day of the Lord, a definition for that is any time that God intercedes with the affairs of man on earth. And that will be from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, uh, 21 judgments on this earth where we can't even comprehend the things uh, that are going to take place as far as the natural earth is concerning. Uh, But uh, when you look at this now, do you as a creation scientist, physicist, do you see any type of sinister motive behind um, the COP26 or the United Nations getting together to to decide to clamp down on, you know, and try to control what's happening in the world? No, I would not go that far. Okay. But I would see the conference as, you know, the best efforts that, that, that mankind man. on their own can tr- try to as they say, save the earth, of course, mm. which is futile anyway. But, and uh, as I look at it, it's really kind of selfish. You know, it's for ourselves and uh, to make this earth so that we can enjoy it more. But actually, from the faith viewpoint, uh, you mentioned stewardship. We've got the best reason for caring for this earth because we know who made it, and it shows his artwork, and in fact, we're responsible for it. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, we have end-time events. Uh, This world is temporary, but meanwhile, we are here, and we are told to care for the earth, just like we care for our own bodies. They're Mm -hmm. temporary as well, but uh, to to keep it up. And so, yes, we do have that responsibility there, but I think it's more of an appreciation and love for the Creator rather than doing it for our own selfish purposes. Exactly, exactly. Well, wrapping up and uh, taking a look, and again, I could talk about, uh, I mean, how often do you get to talk to a doctor, uh, a scientist, a physicist, a creation physicist, uh, when you look at um, the information that Don has stored in? I, I just, I, 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 I love uh, talking about astronomy, and I like talking about the things in the heavens and, and on the earth. As Christians, how should we, um, and this is maybe just in a, in a few short sentences uh, so that people would be able to walk away, um, as Christians, how should we view climate change? Well, I would be positive. I would be optimistic. Mm. I would say, look at this world. Over the last hundred years, with all the population increase, Earth temperature appears to have gone up by about one or two degrees. Mm. That is amazing. It shows that God has built strength, integrity into this world to, to put to put up with us. It all shows his hand. And certainly we don't trash the place. We don't litter the landscape. We're to, we're to care for it. But um, God has set up a wonderful system for us, and, uh, and we carry on. Mm. Dr. Don DeYoung. Don, as you look up into the stars and as you watch that, and I know that you are, are, are watching what's taking place in outer space, do you see anything that concerns you as far as I know that we still have um, asteroids and, and um, you know, objects in space hur- hurling towards, you, towards the Earth? Does any of that concern you at all? Well, exploration goes on. We continue to see the wonder that's up there. 
And, uh, you know, uh, again, as Christians, we have a confidence that we're yes, not we going to get hit by a comet that would wipe out humanity. That's not God's plan right. at all. Mm. So instead, we can enjoy what's in the sky, the sun, moon, and the starlight nights. Dr. Don DeYoung, uh, I, again, the confidence that we have in Colossians one seventeen, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And that means he holds the earth, the world, the solar system, uh, the planetary system out there, all in his hands, and uh, only in his timing will that be released, and and uh, then a new heaven, a new earth in the future. Well, thank you, Don, for being with us today, and uh, we sure appreciate you taking the time. We'll talk to you later. Hey, we'll look forward to next time. Well, thanks, Jimmy, and we go from Dr. Don DeYoung, And we're going to stick with this theme that we've been talking about in this COP26 summit. Uh, And and we have a a radio broadcast partner that we've used before, Ron Murrow. Ron, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's nice to be with you, Rick. Ron, I hear a lot about climate initiatives coming from the world leaders and global elites attending this summit that started October 31st and goes through November 12th in Glasgow. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah, Rick, this uh, this 26th Conference of the Parties, that's where COP26 comes from, actually got off to a dubious start two days earlier with a G20 summit in Rome. As President Biden arrived with 85 guests guzzling limos, SUVs, and vans cruising around the city, yeah. Twitter followers had a field day of criticism. Now, that scene was followed two days later by 400-strong parade of fuel-guzzling private jets flying into Glasgow. Island as the world leaders hope to assign coal to the trash heap of history. Now, here's the irony. On November 3rd, the wind turbines powering the summit stopped turning due to a lack of wind and forcing the U.K. to purchase coal energy at sky-high prices. And that was followed with the display of highly unreliable diesel generators. Now, I'm not making this up. Run on vegetable fat called chip fat to recharge 26 electric cars that were set up on a display while environmentalists urge attendees to cut down on air travel and meat consumption. Some of that's a little humorous as it, as it <laughs> comes across, but there was a lot of talk going around that China and Russia were going to skip the conference. Did that happen? You know, Rick, China is said to emit more greenhouse gases than the entire developed world combined. Research mm. by a think tank called the Rhodium Group says China emitted 27% of the world's greenhouse gases in 2019. And the U.S. was the second largest emitter at 11%, while India was third with 6.6%. What the conference is ignoring is that China, who is planning to build 43 new coal-powered plants and 18 new blast furnaces, did not attend. And Russia, the world's largest emitter of oil and gas-based methane, skipped the conference as well. Well, Ron, that sounds like they're putting on quite a show there. What are you hearing about the idea of carbon taxes at this summit? Yeah, this is a, a big deal. Economists uh, and policymakers have been exploring the idea of carbon tariffs for over 20 years to encourage tougher emission rules. Now, the European Union has taken the lead in carbon tariffs. They unveiled this proposed plan in July. It currently has a cap-and-trade system in which domestic companies are forced to obtain a permit to emit carbon capped at a set amount. Under the proposal, the EU would charge producers outside the area a fee similar to what domestic companies pay based on the carbon content of their products sold in Europe. The broader adjustments would initially apply to four heavily polluting sectors, steel, aluminum, cement, and fertilizer. European officials hope to implement the program by 2025, 
as a part of a deal to cut continental emissions 55% by 2030. British, Japanese, and Canadian governments have begun exploring similar plans. In September, several news outlets reported that mandatory personal carbon credit cards are being developed to control our energy usage. Does that tie in with carbon taxes? Yes, it does. The proposal was prevented in the science of journal uh, Nature by four environmental experts as a means of preparing mandatory personal carbon allowance that would introduce rationing into every area of our lives via an app that would record our travel, heating expenses, and even the food we eat. The card automatically shuts down when the carbon footprint gets too high. Rick, carbon units would be deducted from personal budgets with every payment of gasoline, home heating fuels, electricity bills, and anyone going over the limit would be forced to purchase additional units in the personal carbon market from those who have excess to sell. That means the private jet flying rich could simply bypass the system entirely by buying carbon credits and carrying on their luxurious lifestyle. This all sounds like the world is getting ready for the third horseman of the uh, apocalypse. Do you agree, Ron? I do. Uh, Rick, the, the black horse rider of Revelation 656 carries scales with which to measure the comparative value of money and food. The scene depicts hyperinflation early in the tribulation that can, uh, that can happen suddenly when the value of a nation's currency drops, as what happened in Weimar, Germany in 1921, and is happening today in Venezuela and Lebanon money printing to finance massive spending and debt, and onerous taxes are a surefire plan to eventual economic collapse that would fulfill the prophecy. Well, Ron, it certainly seems like today's headlines are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's what we do on this program. We thank you for coming on and supplying our listeners with some great information. Well, thank you, Rick. I've enjoyed uh, being on the show with you, and we ask for a blessing on all the listeners. We're going to take a break right now at the top of the hour, but when we come back, we're going to continue our legacy series with my father, the late founder of Prophecy Today, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. It's an exciting time, and it's great to hear that voice and that teaching, so I hope you'll continue with us right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, this has been a program where we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, many years ago, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, uh, started teaching Bible prophecy, actually, in the uh, in the early 70s. And God put him on the front row of Bible prophecy taking place when they moved to Israel in 1991. And so for all these years, he's developed a very simplistic way of teaching Bible prophecy. He certainly has, and and it was a way he always said he was a simple person, so he needed to make it easy for simple people to understand. Now, I think he was selling himself short a little bit. He was a very studied man, and he was an excellent communicator, and it's just wonderful. It's such great teaching, and it's basically the whole basis of our ministry. Yes, it is. In fact, this week he's going to be teaching on the three strands of the human family, a hermeneutical principle as you're studying Bible prophecy. It's easy for all of us to understand God's word. It's not just for prophecy teachers or for seminary professors or pastors. It is very easy to understand Bible prophecy. And this week, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will be teaching about the three strands of the human family and how it plays a role in understanding future events and Bible prophecy. 
In our previous studies here on Prophecy Today, we've seen the prophetic program for the end times as recorded in the Bible, and there are three main events yet in the future. The next event on God's calendar of activities will be the rapture of the church. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 1, we see the rapture depicted when John the Revelator says he heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with him, which said, Come up hither. Parallel passages would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The rapture will be followed by a seven-year period of time of terrible trouble and judgments upon the earth, and that's recorded in 16 chapters of detailed information, Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19. The return of Jesus Christ, or the second coming, would be the second main event. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and following. Then there will be the thousand-year millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ will rule and reign from a temple in the city of Jerusalem. After that, the retribution, or as it's referred to in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, the great white throne judgment. Knowing these three events and understanding how and when they do take place is key to understanding God's plan for the future. Next, we need to be aware that there are three members of the human family. Get your Bible ready. We're going to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, and verse 32. Thank you, Jimmy. And now, our Bible teacher, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Go back to 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, if you will, with me. I know 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, is not a prophetic passage, but it has a verse that I want to show you there which helps us to understand an important principle in studying Bible prophecy. Remember the title of our series this week is Five Keys to Unlocking God's Plan for the Future. But look at verse 32, if you will. At the conclusion of his teaching this very carnal church at Corinth, he says this, And I'll give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, And what he does is he divides humankind into three members, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Those are the three members of the human family. We must understand that. If you're going to study Bible prophecy, in fact, if you're going to study the Bible, you need to understand that these are three members of the human family. God has a plan for them. He, in the past, he had a plan for them. Presently, he has a plan for them. In the future, he has a plan for them. Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. In the first 2,000 years of human history, and that would be Genesis chapters 1 through 12, in the first 2,000 years of human history, there are only Gentiles upon the face of the earth. When God created Adam and Eve, they were Gentiles. There were believing Gentiles and there were lost Gentiles during that first 2,000 years of human history. Remember, do you not, that Abel was a believing Gentile? The Lord honored his gift, his sacrifice, Cain, because of that, killed Abel. Abel was a believing Gentile. Cain was a non-believing Gentile. That did not make him a Christian. He was not a Christian because he was a believing Gentile. If you look at the next brother we have recorded in the Bible for Adam and Eve, it was Seth. Now, I'm sure they had more sons and daughters. But in the last part of chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, Seth was a believing Gentile. The text says that in the days of Seth, men started to call upon the name of the Lord. 
How shall they call unless they hear? How shall they hear unless one go? Dan, uh, Romans chapter 10. And so it is that Seth was a believing Gentile. He was a mighty preacher of the gospel. And indeed, he was giving the way of salvation at that time. He had a great, 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 great grandson. His name was Enoch. Enoch was a believing Gentile. He wasn't a Christian. He was a believing Gentile. One day he was out walking along with the Lord. They got so far away from Enoch's house, the Lord looked up at Enoch and said, Hey, buddy, listen, we're a lot closer to my house than your house. Why don't we go on to my house? And he took him right into the heavenlies. He never died. Enoch was a believing Gentile. He had a great, 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 great grandson. His name was Noah. Noah was a believing Gentile. He had three sons and they had three wives and he had a wife. They were all believing Gentiles. How do I know? Because God spared them in the time of the flood. Everybody else, approximately one billion people, were killed when the worldwide flood inundated the entire earth. All of those were killed except eight people, all believing Gentiles. And so God brought Gentiles into existence. In fact, go back to chapter 10 of the book of Genesis with me. The very first time that the word Gentiles, goyim, is used in the Bible is in chapter 10 and verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands. These were all Gentile people. Now I want you to know something. God has a plan for the nations. Let me give you Genesis chapters 1 to 12. Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis 2 is the special effects of creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 5 is the genealogy. Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Genesis chapter 10 is a genealogy. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And that's the first 2,000 years of human history. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, only Gentiles upon the face of the earth. After the flood, 4,500 years ago, God was going to bring nations into existence. What took place was God in chapter 9 in verse 1 of Genesis told Noah and his three sons and their four wives to be fruitful and re-people the entire earth. They were told to do that. Chapter 10, we see the beginning of the record of obedience to that happening. As you read through chapter 10, though, you'll see the son of Ham, Cush, had a son named Nimrod. And Nimrod, in the face of Jehovah God, in the face of Yahweh, he, instead of trying to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth, he went to a place called Babel, which would be on the shores of the Euphrates River, about 58 miles out of downtown Baghdad today. And there he was going to build one great city. He was going to become a king. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the plains of Shinar, modern day Iraq. Because of that, God came down, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, confused their languages, and that started them to doing what he told them to do in the first place, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. I want you to notice how he brought nations into existence. If you've ever wondered where nations come from, we'll find out this morning. Here's God's plan for nations. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Jephthah, 
Gomer, Magog, Tubal, Meshach, Tagarma. If you know anything about Bible prophecy, that's Ezekiel chapter 38. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. These were sons of Jepheth, grandsons of Noah. And they grew up and they started to have children. Then what did they do? Back to verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. So they had to have a new language that they would learn. And so these boys, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma, would get married, teach their sons and daughters how to speak a different language, and they would go to a location and there established a nation. These are how nations came into existence. Now you can go into any geographical, historical, biblical book at all that you want to, any reference book you'd like to, and you can see where Magog went to live. Magog went to live north of the Caspian and Black Sea, if you know anything about geography. North of the Caspian and Black Sea is where Magog took his family. That's modern-day Russia. Where did Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma go? They went south of the Caspian and Black Sea. That's called modern-day Turkey. Judy and I were over in Turkey just recently to do some television. I picked up an ancient Turkish map, and in biblical times, during the times of Asia Minor, when the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 were there, Turkey was basically divided into four parts. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. So don't be listening to these turkeys excuse me for the pun, on television, who try to tell you Gomer is Germany, Meshach is Moscow, and Tubal is Tobolsk. It's where they went when the author Moses was writing about it. They went to live south of the Caspian and Black Sea. And so we see how these grandsons of Noah are starting and establishing nations. Look at verse 6. This will probably blow your mind. Notice this. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Miseram, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Ham. Let's see who Cush is. Cush is modern-day Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. Miseram is modern-day Egypt. Put is modern-day Libya. Look at verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. Verse 10. In the beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. That's modern-day Iraq. I talked about Cush, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan. I talked about Miseram, Egypt. I talked about Put, Libya. I talked about Nimrod going to Babel, Iraq. There's six Arab countries. You know how long it is before Abraham is going to be born? 292 years. You don't have to argue with me. Just read the 11th chapter and add up the years from right after the flood all the way until Abraham is born. And so before Abraham was even born, the Arab world was in existence. So don't be talking to me about Abraham being the father of the Arab world. And for sure, Ishmael was not. But you're being inundated with all of these so-called great Bible commentators on ABC, NBC, and CBS that are telling us this is a problem over there between brothers. No, it's not. Abraham wasn't even born. He didn't father them all. It's not what the text ever teaches us. You know, I don't know why in the world anybody would think that Ishmael fathered the Arab world. You know who Ishmael's mother was? 
Hagar. Where was she from? Egypt. Now, I've got a PhD. I don't have an MD. But I think I'm correct. And if there's an MD, if I'm wrong, you can correct me publicly. Stand right up and shout at me. I don't believe it's possible for a son to father his mother. I don't think that's possible. So Ishmael certainly didn't father Egypt. What does the word say? God has a plan for nations. He brings them into existence in his ultimate plan. Today we've looked at the first member of the human family, Gentiles. And we've learned that it was the Gentiles who became the first nations, a key point in understanding God's plan for the future. Next week we'll see that God does indeed have a plan for nations. We'll see how God brings into existence the priestly nation, the Jewish nation. And we'll see how the Lord will use the Jews to fulfill Bible prophecy. I love that teaching of Bible prophecy, beginning with the three strands of the human family. Rick, next week, we'll continue this process, and it's something that we find that's very important. It is, and it's been enjoyable to hear as well, easy to understand and applicable to us as we look at studying the Word and how important Bible prophecy is and and how we can use certain principles to help us understand Bible prophecy. And uh, you'll hear more of the Legacy Series next week. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. This Sunday marks the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says persecuted believers always ask for prayer. You can get involved, especially through your local church. VOM has created resources to help including a short video that puts a face to the idea of persecuted Christians. Plus, VOM gives churches specific things to pray for on Sunday. In other news, first-century Christians speak to us today through the work of International Media Ministries. President Denise Godwin says the latest IMM docudrama about Cyprian carries a timely message for today's viewers. The quality of this production earns merit. Cyprian took first place in the Strength of Faith category at this year's Hollywood Divine International Film Festival. You can find it on Amazon or Redeem TV. Just look for this series, Lost Legacy Reclaimed. We'll connect you online at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother Rick. It's been a great day today examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, you know, I'm always amazed that, uh, and I think you said it when you talked to Ken Timmerman, 
about his expertise on the uh, information that he gives to us. I mean, he's a very knowledgeable person, and he's been involved in geopolitical issues for a long time, hasn't he? He certainly has, and we are blessed with really uh, strong broadcast partners, and that's why we've chosen these people, because we're curating this news and bringing it to you. We always say we are looking at this because it's setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And if you want to start with Ken, who was our first guest, uh, he had a heavy emphasis on what is taking place in the world right now, geopolitical affairs, but specifically China. And we do know that China is mentioned in Bible prophecy. Well, yes, uh, Revelation chapter 16, China is one of the kings out of the east, along with, I would say, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Those are nations that will be coming uh, towards Israel in the midway point of the tribulation period, especially towards the end of the tribulation period. But as we see, China is gearing up to become the world leader and is very involved, as you said when you talked to Ken, involved in all these areas, not only in Iran and Iraq and all the other nations, but in Sudan. So China is definitely positioning itself with its weapons, massing weapons uh, of mass destruction. China will be one of the kings out of the East that will be coming towards Israel in the end days. Continuing on with Dave Dolan, and so we move from China and we go to Iran. Not only is Iran itself a threat, but they are backing their proxies in the Middle Eastern region and they are using they're going to use or they are planning to use those proxies to come against the nation of Israel. That's right. When you look at these nations, and they said that there are six different armies that they have, uh, proxies that are set up, Sudan being one of them, uh, supplying weapons to Sudan, the Gaza Strip or the Palestinians and uh, Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Yes, Iran is positioning itself right now, and they have stated that they want to wipe Israel off the face of the map, uh, off the earth, really. And when you look at Ezekiel 38... Persia that's mentioned there, that's Iran. When you look at Somalia, Sudan, and Ethiopia, that's Cush. So we do see all of these nations that are mentioned in Bible prophecy, and the common denominator in these nations is that they're Islamic nations that will come against Israel in the end times. We also continued on with Winky Madad, and we talked about the issue that it seems like the Palestinians are being played as pawns on the world scene. But the Palestinian people do have a role to play in the end times. Well, I do think that this is a major uh, program that Satan is putting into place. Yes, the Palestinians do play a major role in the end times. There are prophecies against the Palestinians, or as we would say, the descendants of Edom, Esau, uh, the Edomites, Today, which uh, we see those as the Palestinians, uh, yes, they are being used as pawns, but they are willingly being used as pawns, and they are major players uh, in Bible prophecy. They will continue to play a role until the end of the tribulation period where Ezekiel 37 comes into play where the Palestinian people, uh, Ezekiel chapter 35, the little book of Obadiah, where the judgment on the Edomites or the descendants of Esau will take place. Finally, we went to Dr. Don DeYoung and R.C. Murrow, and we talked about what's been in the news this past week is this COP26 uh, climate change conference. And although we do believe in being good stewards of the earth, we do see the potential for this issue to be used 
to create a set of circumstances that were foretold in Bible prophecy. Yes, I agree with you, Rick. It certainly is setting up a system of thought or a world system in place. Satan will use the Antichrist, the false prophet, to implement uh, a one-world economic system that will be put into place. And then to create a one-world economic system, you can use certain items like climate change or a, a thought process to bring down uh, the economies of major nations of the world to make nations have have to depend on a global economy and a system that will be set in place. And I believe that we are certainly being conditioned for that right now. And I agree with you. We are to be wise stewards of what God has given us. But according to Bible prophecy and according to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, this world is going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. And God holds it all in control. He He's in charge of all of it, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. By him, all things consist. He holds it together. But at a certain point, he's going to turn loose. So although, yes, we need to be wise stewards in what's taking place, there is, I think, something else going on behind the scenes where Satan is using this system to uh, to be able to bring in a one-world system in the future after the rapture of the church. Well, you take all of these things that we've talked about today, and you've you know, so eloquently summed them up here for us. As a Christian and as a listener to this program, how are we to take this information, and how are we to use this in our life, and how should it shape our actions going forward? That's a great question, and I think every week, and even when our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, was doing the program, he always encouraged people to live a pure, productive, holy life. You know, and on today's program, he taught about the three strands of the human family, about how to study Bible prophecy. God, in over one-third of his word, gave us information about future events, and if it was that important to him, how much more important should it be to us? And... We should study it. Each follower of Jesus Christ, each believer, each person that has accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior through believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have that responsibility to learn more about him and to learn and understand the times in which we're living and to realize that, wow, the rapture of the church could happen today and there are events that are happening in our world that are setting up events that will take place in the future. Rick, uh, I believe that this is a very important program, and uh, thanks for joining with me today on the program, and we look forward to coming back again next weekend and hearing the interviews of people that are examining current events, and then we take a look at God's prophetic word to help people to understand, to help Christians, not only Christians, but unsaved people that possibly could be listening to this program. We look forward to this program again next week, and we'll, I'll see you, Rick, on the radio next week as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word until the rapture of the church takes place. guess there's nothing left for us to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.